Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. In a media landscape that changes faster than you can refresh your Twitter feed, it's not easy to capture a reader's attention. And yet, for some of the world's most influential women, The Cut is a daily must-read. And that's almost certainly because of Stella Bugby. Throughout her seven-year rise to president and editor-in-chief, Stella's masterminded The Cut's evolution from fringy New York Magazine-style section to provocative storytelling powerhouse, one that now reaches well beyond fashion. On The Cut, you might read a piece chronicling the latest niche drama rocking the K-pop world, or an anonymous sex diary of a freelance writer dating a famous actor. Take a deep dive into the environmental toll of tourism in Tulum, then scroll through a glossy high fashion editorial featuring New York skater girls or the flute-playing hip-hop phenom Lizzo. Perhaps the best way to define The Cut's editorial thread is through a classic quote from Stella herself. We cover the dumb stuff really smartly, and the smart stuff really lightly. But expertly weaving together disparate ideas and mediums has become somewhat of a theme in Stella's life, if not an artistry. Her earliest exposure to the power of style came from her parents, many bohemian artist and actor friends, as well as both her immaculately dressed grandmothers. One was a buyer for a luxury department store in Los Angeles, and the other was a hairstylist. Through all of them, Stella learned early on that fashion could be its own flexible form of social currency, used to assert power and wealth or creative self-expression. And while she's ostensibly a fashion person by trade, despite also being one of media's most influential people, Stella's Instagram reveals she's more apt to dispensing culinary advice than outfit tips. Seriously, don't sleep on this editor-in-chief's secret for the perfect roast chicken. These days, Stella and her team are experimenting with new forms of storytelling. In March, they launched How I Get It Done Day, an all-day masterclass on being a high-functioning person in the world, featuring everyone from actress A.D. Bryant to astrologer Susan Miller. The Cut Shop lets you buy t-shirts featuring the site's latest pithy headline, and their latest effort, a podcast called The Cut on Tuesdays, tackles a gamut of topics, just like the site, from books to body hair, work wives to weed. From a distance, it might not seem like these things go together. But if you know anything about Free Cabana, look it up, you'll know Stella Bugby has a way of making just about anything click. Stella Bugby, thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyle today. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Every season, I like to have an editor from the media community talk with me because I feel like there's stuff that you can appreciate and have really interesting, unique opinions about that a lot of people can't. But remember when we did a panel discussion at my office and you were leading the cut then? Anna Holmes was moderating and she was one of the founding editors at Jezebel. Amy O'Dell, who was at, I think she was at Cosmo then. No, she was just newly at BuzzFeed. And a few other people, just really women's digital media and like the leadership there. And I remember a lot of the conversation was steered around this sort of conflict between like growth and audience growth and originality and being able to be ambitious and creative and spontaneous, but also feeling like you have this pressure. And 
Anna asked you a question and you said, <laughs> I'll never forget oh, it. Oh, no. <laughs> you said, well, you know, I don't know about any of you guys, but I just worry every single day that I'm going to get fired. <laughs> Do you remember? No, you don't no remember saying that? Because that. we were talking about the pressures of the awareness of traffic and the fact that we had an audience that we were helping to expand and grow and diversify. And it really made me deeply respect you because I think a lot of people think because we launched 14 years ago that I have all the answers and I really have so few of the answers. I'm sometimes just as clueless as everybody else. And I remember when you said that because I was so deeply stressed <laughs> out all the time because it was just at a turning point in our industry where it just felt like it was a real turning point in media in general. And I just wanted to talk with you about how you've managed to navigate that. I have um, a bad habit of saying really ridiculous spontaneous things on panels <laughs> I later really? end up regretting. But yeah, no, I don't remember saying that, although I do remember feeling it all the time. There was this pressure, this feeling that you kind of lived or died by the day, the traffic, the month, which I still feel to some degree it's very hard once you've been trained in that mode of checking Chartbeat and watching stories travel out into the world and then figuring out how to game that or how to make decisions about it or, you know, what stories to actually do based on this information, this instant data that you're getting back. I think it warps your brain a little bit. Frankly, like, not that I still feel like I'm going to get fired all the time, but I do feel like we are in a precarious industry that is always figuring itself out. I would say I feel like I've had a different job every six months in the eight years that I've been doing this, which is what keeps it interesting, honestly, what keeps me kind of a little bit on edge. I think that that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize, that working in this industry, you have to expect that your job is going to change dramatically from year to year. And I think the people that want it to stay the same, it can be a struggle. The big lesson for me is embrace the chaos. Embrace the, and it's so corny, <laughs> embrace the chaos. It sounds like a 90s anthem. It's like move fast and break things. It's like a different version of that. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's different than that because... For me, it's not about recklessness, right? Mm -hmm. It's about understanding that control, which is a thing that many people seek in every industry and everything, isn't necessarily the best way to grow. Mm -hmm. And growth is the goal for most of us. The challenge is like, how do you balance growth and quality? I think letting go of some need for controlling every single thing is the only it's hard, way to isn't do it? it. I don't find it hard. It suits me in that regard. It's good. Like, I don't feel the need to control every single thing. In fact, I don't like to control every single thing. So what I like is to have people who have the same values, let's just say, and the same standards of quality. And then like I just like to let them go. And then if there's a problem, we monitor it very closely. So that's kind of my management style. That's the way I prefer to be managed. You know, that's the way I think that in this particular industry, you get the best results, at least in my experience. The chaos is part of it. I think that when I made that breakthrough, when I realized that chaos was going to be the defining characteristic of working online, mm -hmm. I sort of relaxed into that a little bit and was like, okay, well, let's work around that. Let's work with this chaos and let's just see what can happen with that.
Unstyled podcast was made possible by Estee Lauder, the eponymous luxury beauty brand created by one of the world's first women entrepreneurs. As a confident rule breaker ahead of her time, Mrs. Estee Lauder once said, if you push yourself beyond the furthest place you think you can go, you'll be able to achieve your heart's dream. In her entrepreneurial pursuit, she invented disruptive opportunities to connect directly with her customers in a personal way that altered the beauty industry forever. Learn more about how Estee Lauder is continuing her legacy in-store and online at estelauder.com. You were the design director at Domino Magazine in its first iteration, I guess. Actually, I took it over midway through its lifespan and saw it to its end. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it was still kind of under the oh, ownership yeah. of, yes. of Connie Nast. I don't Nast. think of it now as being a real thing. But yes, I have to revise that statement. Yes. No, I was okay. in the original Domino posse. I think there's general volatility in everything media related at this point. The fact that there's so little security, I think it's really cast a negative shadow across like all of media. I have no nostalgia for print. Really? And, no. And having been through a rather ugly Condé Nast meltdown in which, you know, we had 24 hours to vacate the premises and all 130 of us were laid off in, you know, 10 minutes span. After that experience, I thought this is not an industry that is going anywhere. I don't think that there's a future for magazines. I don't think there's a future for print paper, newspapers. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a future for storytelling and truth-telling and investigations. In fact, quite the opposite, actually. I think it's more important and more necessary to be rigorous about the processes behind journalism than it ever was. The medium in which those stories and those truths are distributed is not going to be paper. How do you feel about being a women's publication or largely a women's publication during a time like this when it really does feel like women continue to be marginalized and kind of singled out in certain ways? It's so bizarre to me that we've come so far and that we have this breakout moment for people like AOC and Stacey Abrams. And it's an extraordinarily important time for women, specifically young women. But also I feel kind of tired by having these same conversations around body inclusivity and equal pay and all this kind of shit. But what do you think the unique responsibility is for The Cut for women today? Why do you think it's so important that The Cut exists now? I see The Cut as a place that is all about conversation. So I don't get too prescriptive about what that conversation is. I don't say, well, we can't talk about this, or we can only talk about this, or we can only have this opinion about this. To me, it's a place where you go to be entertained, provoked, stimulated, engaged. That's what's important to me, is that it reflects the sound that women have themselves. So it's changed, and it changes all the time. It changes depending on who's on staff, and it changes depending on the moment we're in, literally moment to moment. So the sound of the cut and the importance of the cut during the Harvey Weinstein fallout was different to me than it is today because that's what we were all obsessed with and talking about and needing to hear about and needing to vent about. Today, it's something different. 
But you don't think it's any more important, the kind of work that you're doing for women today than it was like maybe five years ago? I think that I've been incredibly lucky to helm this project at a time where women's interests... It's a little bit bigger than a project now. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I, I think of it as a project. I think what's been fun about it is that we have been doing this thing that coincided with a moment where women's culture became culture instead of a niche interest. It became a cultural fixation in the center of the culture. And we were already there doing it. And so we benefited from that moment where suddenly culture became obsessed with women and our lives and our experiences. Women and people of color and all these different gender issues and all these things that we were already working on suddenly became the main conversation. It coincided with what we were already doing. That is like a gift of timing that I couldn't have predicted, certainly didn't predict. So I benefited slightly from being able to capitalize on that moment because it coincided with my interests. So when I came to the cut, it was mostly about fashion, which I love also. And the mandate was to broaden the scope of what we covered. I had no idea that the way in which we were broadening the scope of what we covered would coincide with the way the culture was also going to change. So you're also the mom. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I have three kids. Yes. Understanding the sort of rigor of managing the kind of workload that we have and deadlines. And I know that your family life is so important to you. And um, how does it work? How do you make it work? What are some of the priorities that you've made or like the way that you structure your time that really has benefited you? I wouldn't say it has benefited me. (laughs) Really? I mean, I think I just chuckle or not even chuckle. I just sort of shake my head. Mainly when people talk about self-care, I think like, the fuck has time for self-care? Well, I also read in the research about you is that you were offered the cut job and you turned it down at first because you were pregnant with your third child. Is that true? I was on maternity leave. Mm-hmm. And well, I wasn't on maternity leave. That's a misnomer. I was unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> I had no job. I was not sure it's convenient. what I was going to do. It was good timing. <laughs> I really didn't have a plan. And, and, you know, I wanted to go back to work. I just wasn't sure what it was going to be. What I wanted to do was write. I wanted to be an editor. I wanted to write. I did not have a resume that backed that up. So David Haskell, who's now going to be the editor-in-chief of New York Mag, Mm -hmm. was a friend of mine from a project we had worked on years before as a side project. And he called me while I was out of work and said, they're looking for someone to redo the cut and they can't really find the right person would you come in and talk to Adam? And I was also talking simultaneously for some unknown curse of the universe to Vogue at the same exact week that I got that call to go in and work on their digital project, Vogue.com. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was like a pretty nascent project. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is so crazy that two amazing things have like happened in one week. What will I do? But I met with Adam and he said basically that 
he would let me be an editor at large, which was a title I thought I needed on my resume in order to make this switch. Yeah. And a lot of people don't make that jump. You were actually at the time, just to give a little background, you'd gone to school to Parsons. You were really like a creative director. Creative director, director yeah. At yeah. That point. yeah. And to make the jump to becoming an editor in chief or an editorial director is not pretty common. No, it's very difficult for people to see you outside of the category that you're in. I actually can't think of anybody that's made that jump. I just really thought it would be a stepping stone to something else. I thought I needed that legitimacy to make the leap that I wanted to make and that I would get some bylines and that, you know, then I could say I worked on this editorial project. Maybe I could take my show on the road and try to get a job somewhere. Like, you know, when I said I was like always in fear of getting fired, I think that was partially because I had been laid off from Condé so abruptly. And, you know, I felt that you can't really make assumptions about Mm -hmm. anything. And so I was really living not one day at a time, but more with a sense of like, we'll see what happens, you know? Mm -hmm. And I did the memo and I loved it so much. I, I never loved doing anything so much as I did making that memo. And do you remember anything about it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. I mean, like I spent like a solid week working on it and, uh, and actually being a designer is an advantage when you're putting together a memo like that. I'm sure it looked really beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. All kinds of photo references. And yeah, I mean, it was more like, I had never made a memo. I didn't even know what I was doing. I had no idea what a memo even was. I had to say, what's a memo? When Ben Williams asked me to do one. Did you really say that? I did. (laughs) What's a memo? What's a memo? I had never done a memo. I had done proposals, a million proposals in life, but I'd never heard that language. I wasn't an editor. Mm -hmm. I had never done a memo. I quickly learned that I liked it very much. It was really fun, but I didn't feel... Well, you can say whatever you want. That's what's so freeing about it. Well, I didn't even know what that even meant. So I, I was like, <laughs> it was more like I did this memo. I had a thousand ideas. I did a second memo right after I turned that memo in. because I, Oh, I have like 10 more ideas. Here's 10 more ideas. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had so much excitement for it. And then I thought, I don't really have the qualifications to lead this project because I felt like I didn't know. I didn't know how to be an editor at the time. And I don't think it's just ideas, right? I think it was just like, I just didn't feel qualified. Right. To do the job. So I even though in doing my, the memo came really easily to you and you really enjoyed the process. Yes. Even though that happened, I still was like, I don't know if I can lead a whole website. I don't know. But I think there's something really important about this. Particular... I know you're going to say it's gendered. <laughs> you're well, going to say it's like women don't feel like they. I actually wasn't going to say that okay. at all. What I was going to say is that I think it's important for people to remember that it's not always about the qualifications that you have. You know, I want to give women more confidence when it comes to taking leaps of faith like that, because when something comes so easily to you, when it's not boring, when it's not a struggle to actually do it, it generally means that that's something that you might want to be spending your time doing. Well, so I knew I wanted to spend my time doing it. I knew that right away. And in my cover letter, I said, this was so much fun. I loved this so much. I don't think you should hire me to be the editorial director. (laughs) I mean, I think I was also like a little bit nervous about leaving my eight month old to eight months be just work, 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 work. And I thought, I don't know this company. I don't know these people. I don't know what my life would be like. Just because I'm really curious as a new mother right now, I'm in a very unique place where I feel like I'm not doing anything very well. There's like no area of my life that I'm really killing it and I'm okay with it. I'll have times again when I'm super focused and just what do they call it? Running on all cylinders. 
But I still feel like I'm in a learning phase, like learning how to be a mom and the kind of mom I want to be and really trying not to feel like shit when I look at other people that are mothers, working mothers, particularly business owners and working mothers and carry the responsibility of hundreds of employees and just feeling responsible for their experience every day and not being there to look after them. I feel a lot of guilt about that. But I also feel a lot of guilt about only now since I've been back to work is only spending about two hours a day with my kid, which also sucks. But I'm curious, um, with three children, what kind of works for you in terms of your perspective about how you show up for both jobs and just do the best that you can? I don't know. I don't. Well, you told me once that you didn't make dinner plans during the week because you really wanted to spend time with your kids. And I remember thinking like that's the kind of discipline that's probably really useful when and if I ever become a mother. And now I don't make any evening plans at all because the idea of missing her bath time and missing that time with her before she goes to sleep is like I can't even imagine it. I think that being a mom, a working parent rather, has made me more efficient about time at the office. I don't mess around. I don't go on G-chat. You know, I'm extremely focused during that time because I know I got to get out and I got to be home. I would say now I've made it so that I try not to have to go to more than one or two work events a week. Mm -hmm. And I'm home and my husband is home making dinner as much as possible. We eat as a family or one parent with the family every, every night. night. Every night. So either he or I are home. Or we're both home. We try to both be home. It's so cliche, but it's a really nice time together as a family. And it changes. The other thing about parenting, right? You think when you have a baby, this is how parenting is. <laughs> and again, it's one of those things that changes every six months. And so now I have teenagers. It's a totally different kind of parenting. Isn't um, your daughter's name Julia? Yeah. I remember last year or something when she became a teenager, you posted something and I actually cried. <laughs> Which thing? Because you showed a picture of yourself pregnant when you were pregnant with your twins and the fact that she's like a teenager now. And I remember thinking like, <laughs> I got all choked up. <laughs> I was like, wow, that must feel really incredible. I love having teenagers. I love having a different kind of relationship with the kids and realizing that it's finite and knowing that it changes. We change. My marriage changes. Our lives change. Again, it's sort of embracing the chaos of it all. It's like trying to say this is how things are and this is how they're going to be controlled doesn't make for the most dynamic and interesting life. I find that, yes, we try to have dinner. Our dinners together at the table are funny and chaotic and no one has any table manners and we get the food on the table and it's like some people are eating really fast and standing up and telling stories and it's chaotic and loud and, you know, one kid gets up and goes to the bathroom and then, you know, it's just really like, it's fun. And I try to make it a fun time for us all to vent and talk and I listen to their stories even when their stories are boring or you kind of just... Our stories are boring sometimes too. Oh, I'm oh sure. Oh my God. They're like, do we really have to hear about the cut sometimes, again? <laughs> sometimes I hear myself telling a story. I'm like, you know what? We're just going to stop this story right now because it's not worth it. It's not worth you even hearing it right now. I think it's just like prioritizing. I don't even know. I really, honestly, I hate to give advice because I think it is so hard to take and so custom to every person. When I hear you say like, you find it hard not to judge yourself. Thankfully, I would say my greatest gift in life is that I don't compare myself to other people on a regular basis. And that helps me function in life. So I wouldn't say like, I know how to do it. You should live your life like this because I truly 
reject that when it happens to me. Like I, I have like an allergic reaction to hearing how other people live and then thinking I should live like that or that's good advice for me. And I mean, occasionally I take lessons from people, but really like having the sort of fortitude to say like, my life is mine. My decisions are weird and unique and they only suit me and that's okay. And no one has the right to tell me that it's the wrong decision or judge me for it. My family is weird and special and unique. It's not like anybody else's family. And then, you know, extending everybody else the same courtesy by saying like, do what you got to do. You know, like if you can't make it home for dinner, don't make it home for dinner. This is my choice. Like I certainly don't tell anybody to go home and have dinner with their kids if as much as possible. I would never say to someone, this is the key to a happy family. You know, it's a happy family looks different to everybody. I'm fielding a lot of unsolicited advice these days. So yeah, right. And I truly and firmly believe there is no one way to be. There is no correct way to be. There is no ideal way to be. There is just what you are dealing with, you person, individual person. And I think if we can bring it back to the women's landscape of typical kinds of media that we are subjected to, that's not normal. That idea is not what most publications are selling. They're selling idealized versions of people's lives. Mm -hmm. The idea is that there really isn't that. And they're just individual stories. And there's value in listening to those stories. And you take what you want from each person. And you enjoy those people for who they are. And you don't say like, well, I have to be that way. Or that person's telling me how to be. And honestly, that's a hard habit to break, even in readers. So we'll sometimes publish stories or even I'll tell a story about my own life. And the assumption is that I'm saying this is how you should be. When if you really pay attention over a long period of time, you realize... That's a conditioning, though. The opposite, right? We're saying be yourself, do your thing, have confidence in yourself, question yourself, question other people. Don't be complacent. Like, those are the values. It's not like be a better you, feel empowered. It's like, no, just be a really engaged person who asks a lot of questions of yourself and others. Stella Bugby, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Unstyled today. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks. I hope you're inspired after hearing Stella's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbaric. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Jay Brunson and Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza. Copy support was provided by Leanne Duggan. Our theme music today is by the artist Cough, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios and Gotham Podcast Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with the managing editor of Refinery29's own Unbothered, Danielle Cadet, on the beauty and importance of celebrating Black women. We'll see you then.